this podcast features forthcoming authors, both professional and student, to be featured in the forum in our print publication, New England Law Boston professors discussing their scholarship, as well as interviews with symposia guests. Hello, and uh, welcome to the New England Law Review podcast. My name is Nicholas Baban. And I'm a third-year student here at New England Law Boston and the executive online editor of the New England Law Review. For today's episode, we will be talking about the college admissions scandal. I'm joined by telephone today by attorney Elizabeth Voulage. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Elizabeth Voulage is an associate in the New York office of Siegel McCambridge Singer and Mahoney. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Journalism from SUNY Purchase, as well as a Master of Arts degree in Journalism from NYU, and a JD from CUNY School of Law. She has worked in practice areas such as employment law, intellectual property, and commercial litigation, and has interned at establishments such as Scholastic, the Kings County District Attorney's Office, and the New York Court of Appeals. She has written on topics such as gender-based violence and education for publications including the Gonzaga Journal of International Law, Law 360, and our very own New England Law Review. Thank you for being here uh, today, Attorney Voulage. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So you have written quite a bit uh, on the topic of the college admissions scandal, including an article that you uh, wrote for us why the potential future varsity blues legal trial should make college admissions fair game for all students. And you also wrote an article, Endowment or Inducement, the legal distinction between college donations and bribes for the New York Bar Association Journal. What is it about this case that interests you so much and has compelled you to write about it? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think just firstly, just based on um, the facts of the case, you know, just the sheer number of people involved, uh, the amount of money, you know, millions and millions of dollars involved, I think captured my attention as well as many people across the country. And um, I think it's, you know, people have had sort of thoughts about the college admission system for a long time. And, you you know, you hear stories about people making X donation to X kind of school. But to have a case where, you know, there's a lot of physical evidence evidence that's being presented, um, you know, of the kind of conduct that was going on on behalf of these parents, um, I think kind of confirmed what a lot of people had been thinking, um, what was going on in, you know, parts of our college admission system. So I think, one, just the sheer facts and volume of the case, and then two, uh, the idea that this is kind of um, kind of a more sort of concrete example of what people had been suspecting had been going on um, in colleges and college admissions um, throughout the country. Um, and also, thirdly, I mean, I think just now, now that I'm no longer a student and I've been working for a little while, um, I've just become more interested in the topic of education just from a more objective point of view. Uh, I think when you're a student, and, you know, I'm sure you empathize with this, you know, when you're fully immersed in your academics, you're just focused on doing well and, you know, graduating and all of that. But, you know, once you're a little bit further from that point in your life, um, I think it's interesting to look at the state of education in our country, whether it's, you know, student loans or college admissions and, um, you know, just to kind of see how it's evolved. So just, I think, from a personal point of view, I've become really interested in that since I'm, you know, no longer focused and immersed 100% in my academics the way that I used to be when I was a student. Right. So you kind of have like this, uh, 
this uh, kind of 20 feet away perspective now that you've been able to get out of school for a little while? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, just to kind of see um, how the system is evolving as well, you know, from when I was a little bit younger and to see, um, you know, what college admissions is like and and how it differs from other parts of the world as well. You know, it's a completely different system in America compared to other parts of the world, such as Europe and things like that. So, um you know, having that little bit of perspective and distance, I think, helps so you can look at a topic more objectively and see, um, you know, how it's changed and evolved over time. And now you mentioned uh, some aspects of the differences between endowment and inducement, and I definitely want to get into that in a little bit. But could you first provide us with a little bit of background on the college admissions case, uh, maybe talk about some of the main characters involved in the scandal? Yeah, sure. So the college admissions case, um, it was, it is what some people might also know as Operation Varsity Blues, uh, was a scandal that broke out earlier this year. It was back in March. And basically there were around uh, over 30 parents of college applicants who were accused of paying, I think the collective sum was over $25 million um, between 2011 and 2018 to this guy named William Rick Singer. And Singer was basically, um, was basically accused of being kind of the head of this scheme, and he used money that these parents paid him allegedly to inflate test scores, to bribe college officials, all to help these parents get their kids into the schools that they wanted. And he allegedly partially funneled this money through one of his foundations, Key Worldwide Foundation, um, which he, you know, tried to set up as sort of a charity setup. And um, it all kind of came about because there was this man named Maury Tobin who was already under investigation for securities charges, um, but he offered information about, um, you know, the coach of the Yale women's soccer team and, you know, how he was kind of um, having discussions with him about how to get his daughter, Tobin, um, about how to get his daughter into Yale. So Tobin agreed to, you know, speak to the coach and wear a wire, and his cooperation eventually led the authorities to Singer, um, and this all happened last year on the fall of 2018. Um, but basically, you know, to get into the nitty gritty with Singer, you know, parents were paying him sums to help their kids get into the schools that they wanted through various ways. You know, sometimes Singer allegedly worked with psychologists to try to get paperwork to claim that, you know, some kids had a learning disability to get extra time on the test, which in fact they didn't have that disability. Um, he used uh, part of the sums he received through the foundation to allegedly pay coaches, um, you know, for bribes to bring in students as athletic recruits, even if they didn't play a certain sport that they claimed that they did. Um, he also had people allegedly alter the test scores of certain kids after they took the exams. Um, so basically, you know, two of the biggest methods that he used to help these kids get into these schools was one, kind of falsely uh, amplify these athletic credentials that these kids just didn't have. I mean, a lot of these kids just simply didn't play the sport that they were claiming that they did, um, or, you know, allow, facilitate cheating on college entrance exams, whether it was changing the score directly or, you know, getting these kids extra time when, when it wasn't warranted. Um, and, and you also asked for, you know, some of the main characters involved. And, you know, obviously one of them is Singer because he's accused of being sort of the head of this um, scheme. And his background is actually kind of interesting because he has sort of made a career before all this happened about 
you know, helping kids get into college. He founded the company College Source. He's written a bunch of self-help books about, you know, getting how to get into college and, you know, offering legitimate tips about how to do that. Um, and he also ran two organizations, one of them being Key Worldwide Foundation. So, um, you know, so it's interesting. He's kind of like built a career on this and seems to have done a lot of legitimate things to help kids get into college until all of this broke out. Um, and aside from Singer, you know, another set of key people involved in this are obviously the parents themselves and the parents that are involved. I mean, it all differs. You know, some people are involved in business, some are in the entertainment industry, some are, you know, in sports even. But I'm one thing that all of these parents kind of have in common is that they come from considerable wealth. And that's the whole argument that a lot of people have reported on in this case is that, you know, you have these parents that are utilizing the wealth and privilege that they have to unfairly game the system. And a lot of parents are involved, but two of them, obviously the two most high profile people that have been in the news a lot is um, the actresses, Felicity Huffman and Lori Loughlin, um, who add kind of a sort of, I want to say tabloid as coverage to the case. Um, and I think it's piquing the interest of uh, a lot of people just to have their involvement in it. So, you know, the, the, the alleged crimes that they committed differ. And a lot of these parents, they, they all kind of had a different kind of participation in this scheme just based on the amount of money they paid and, and you know, what they had uh, Singer do. But I would say the parents involved and Singer are kind of the two, you know, main sets of characters in this. So you kind of have uh, two groups of individuals involved. You have the individuals that really took place in organizing and facilitating these uh, the scandal, uh, and you also have the parents involved. What specific crimes were they actually charged with? What crime did they commit? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, because their conduct differed all across the board based on how much money they paid and what they, you know, alleged crimes they committed, it's going to be different for each individual parent. But if you want to take the two most kind of high-profile people involved in the case, um, take Felicity Huffman, for example. So she was recently sentenced to 14 days in prison, um, a term which she'll set to begin, I think, at the end of this month. But what happened was she paid Singer allegedly $15,000 to have someone change her daughter's answers on um, a call entrance exam in a testing center and um, <clears throat> when evidence excuse me kind of came out of this she was charged with fraud and conspiracy and that's in contrast to someone like Lori Lachlan who was had allegedly paid along with her husband singer half a million dollars to facilitate two of her daughters to get into USC to present them as um, rowing athletes um, when they didn't actually participate in the sport. So a lot of the charges that they're initially brought forward with is fraud and conspiracy. Um, but with Lori Lachlan, it's a little bit interesting because Felicity Huffman took a guilty plea that was offered to her by prosecutors earlier this year. So that's why, partly why she got a lower prison sentence um, was because she pleaded guilty to, you know, the charges of fraud and conspiracy, whereas Lori Lachlan pleaded not guilty. And <clears throat> she was slapped with an additional charge, um, you know, just uh, based on her unwillingness to kind of um, plead guilty. Um, so you see a lot of the charges that are involved are fraud, conspiracy, racketeering, things like that. What is the current status of the case? You had mentioned that some parents had pled guilty and some are kind of electing for a trial. Um, what about Singer? Is he electing for a trial? or um, And when would those trials take place, if you know? 
Yes, sure. So <clears throat> with Felicity Huffman, as I mentioned, um, she's going to be beginning her prison sentence um, at the end of this month, I believe. And it's uh, set to begin at a federal prison in California. And, <clears throat> you know, as I said, um, Lori Laughlin rejected a plea to commit guilty to fraud. And because of that, they're also hit with an additional charge of money laundering as well. So for her, a federal judge in Boston, Circle 2020 is the time frame for which the trials for Laughlin and 19 other parents who pled not guilty are to begin. Um, there's not a specific date set yet, but a federal judge in Boston has kind of reserved next year for her, for the trial to be um, going underway for Lachlan, as well as um, nearly 20 other parents involved who didn't plead guilty. A lot of the parents who did plead guilty along with Huffman are kind of, you know, their attorneys were kind of working with prosecutors to figure out what sentence would make the most sense and things like that. So I think a lot of people in the group, along with Felicity Huffman, are seeing that they're starting to get their prison, their sentences and, you know, kind of starting to prepare to serve that, serve whatever punishment has been given to them. So obviously there's going to be a couple of trials in this case, um, and some of the key players are very famous individuals, people that come from uh, great wealth. Why do you think this became such a countrywide newsworthy case? Yeah, I mean, I think it's for a variety of reasons. I think first and foremost, just on a fact basis, it's the largest case of its kind to be prosecuted um, by the Justice Department, just given the amount of parents involved. I mean, it's over 30 parents that were initially charged with this um, and the amount of money involved. I mean, it's over $20 million that was allegedly funneled through this, you know, sort of quote unquote charity foundation. So I think when, you know, the information came out, I think the numbers itself were just staggering. And also, secondly, I think it's what I was saying earlier was I feel like it also kind of confirmed a lot of people's initial suspicions about what had been going on in the college admission system for a long time. I mean, I think there were individual stories that had been coming out through the news for years about you know, this person paid X amount of money to this school to help their child get in, you know, sort of like the Jared Kushner Harvard stories, um, so to speak, about, you know, what parent had to pay what to help facilitate their child's entry into this college. But, you know, when this case came out, there were, you know, transcripts and, you know, evidence that was being presented to the public to show, um, you know, the active participation that people had in kind of facilitating these kids into getting them into these schools in this way. So I think, um, it kind of represented to people um, thoughts that they had for a long time about what was going on in college admissions. And I think it just sort of sets a greater example about, you know, how this country kind of looks at education in certain ways and what the state of education has come to um, in America and sort of the competition and almost um, corporate esque sort of conduct that has sort of infiltrated the college admission scandal, uh, excuse me, the college admission system. So I think in a lot of ways, people were shocked by the scandal, but not surprised by it um, in an interesting way. And, and also, I mean, I think no matter who was involved, I think it would have been a shocking case, but just having, you know, people on a high level, um, you know, prominent people involved like Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman and things like that, people that, you know, young young people grew up watching, seeing them involved in something like this, I think also added an extra layer of sort of salaciousness to this story. Um, I think no matter what, it would have had a huge impact, but then having that as well um, added to another, added another level of interest to it. And so uh, you've talked a lot about um, kind of the inducements that happened in this case, but the kind of 
um, previously recognized like endowments that parents have given to get their kids into school that didn't really reach inducements. What is the actual like legal di- difference between an inducement and endowment? Because uh, they seem ra- rather similar on their face. Um, and they're also both received very often, I guess, uh, in top schools. So what, what is the, actually the difference? Sure, yeah. Well, it's interesting because it varies depending on what state you're in. Um, You know, as you mentioned, I wrote an article about this in the New York State Bar Association Journal. And in New York, there are a couple of distinctions that help kind of, um, you know, solidify the line between the two. I mean, an endowment is usually a donation that's made to the school itself, whereas when you're talking about an inducement, which is more also known as sort of a bribe, it's usually paid to a specific person, an employee at the school, who can have a more active role in trying to facilitate this applicant's admission. Um, Secondly, inducements are usually offered to people who are in the position to kind of facilitate this, like let's say an admissions officer or dean or maybe a proctor, whereas donations are just made to the school in general and not to an individual that has, um, you know, sort of a say in what admissions decisions are made at the school. Um, But in terms of actual legal distinction in New York, bribery is usually defined as when one person gives a benefit to someone with the understanding that that person will be influenced by that sum. So donations don't necessarily have that sort of understanding. Um, Whereas, you know, when you're giving an inducement to someone, it's kind of an agreement in exchange between two people and that, you know, I'm conferring this benefit to you and in exchange, you're going to give me a benefit, whether that's, you know, getting my kid admitted as an athlete or just getting him admitted to the school in general, um, you know, things like that. But there's difficulty in that as well because, you know, you can have the distinctions legally and on paper, but we also live in the real world. And when you have a person who's choosing between two potential applicants, you know, one that a student should be based admitted just based strictly on merit, but then you have another student whose parent is, you know, donating a million dollars for a new wing that the school needs. Um, you can see why the pendulum swings a lot in the student's favor. So, um, I think it's a gray area and it's difficult to kind of prosecute these crimes because you have the legal distinction on paper of what an inducement is and what an endowment is. But then, you know, a lot of times when parents make sort of these large scale donations, they're making the donation, but also within the context is, you know, why would this parent be donating, let's say, like $2 million to the school without wanting something in return? And a lot of times they could be, you know, you know, alumni just want to give back to the school that they went to and they loved. Um, so a lot of times it could just be a mere donation. But then, you know, there's also a lot of times where there's an expectation. And even if it's not spoken or there's no evidence to show an agreement, it's, it's kind of implied. So that's why a lot of these cases, we've heard a lot about these things happening for years and years, but it's really difficult to prosecute these cases without having that sort of evidence of the agreement and that's what distinguishes the two endowment and inducement and in your paper that you wrote for us for the new england law review um you discuss how colleges in america evolved from affording equal opportunity to a symbol of corporate capitalism can you discuss this a little bit yeah sure so In the article, I felt like it was important just to take a little bit of time just to talk about the evolution of college and the college system in America for for two reasons, mostly. Um, I was interested in just the history 
of how it evolved myself, um, especially coming from a place, you know, I went to an academically rigorous high school and a lot of pressure is put on kids to get into the perfect college. And I think that's been the case for so many years. So I just wanted to see, you know, how, how we got to that sort of point where all this pressure is put on the kids and sometimes even the parents about, you know, which college you're going to. And two, I think it was important for readers to understand what frame of mind a lot of these students and parents must have been in to participate allegedly in a scheme like this. And I think to understand that, they have to understand how the college system started out. But um, basically, you know, I talk about in the article how way back when sort of the first few colleges were being set up in America back in the 1700s and 1800s, there were only a few select individuals who could actually go to college. And most of those people were, you know, white men who are coming from well-off families that, you know, these families were able to afford to send these son- their sons to school. And even though the tuition wasn't extremely high, I mean, a lot of times, you know, so much of America was rural back then. I mean, it still is, but more so back then. So a lot of families needed their sons to stay and work and, you know, earn money for the family, whereas wealthier families were able to afford to send their sons off to college and pay for expenses like room and board and books like that. And, you know, at that time, there were about I think I read a statistic like it was only nine colleges in the U.S. at around the time of the Revolutionary War. And when students did go to school, they studied things like Latin and Greek and ancient history. Compared to fast forward in around 1862, the more the Moral Land Grant Acts were passed by Congress. And that allowed land sales um, to create schools that are geared towards things like studying home economics and the mechanical arts. And that was a huge, huge shift. But because before college was mostly geared towards providing an education only in classical arts to a certain set, to a certain tier of people, um, you know, so this this slew of acts kind of helped give an opportunity for more people to gain a more practical education. And then we saw that kind of happen more in the 1940s as well with the GI Bill. So the GI Bill provided tuition payments for World War II vets to kind of help them, you know, gain an education after they came back from the war and rebuild their lives and things like that. Um, And Throughout the 40s up until the 60s, we saw a huge change in colleges kind of giving a chance to those that groups of people that were seen as oppressed or marginalized, you know, like people of color, women, children of immigrants, veterans, um, people from poorer backgrounds. You know, there were more colleges that were opening up that allowed um, through the GI Bill for people to get um, an education to in fields that are maybe more practical and, you know, um, they, where they can gain employment very quickly. And also in the 50s with Brown v. Board of Education, obviously, and in the 1960s, you saw a lot more colleges opening up to people of color. And a lot of so-called junior colleges, was what they were called back then, were getting renamed as community colleges. So people were allowed to get, you know, a more practical education of two years at a lower cost. So you saw we saw not only an increase in the number of schools, but the types of education people were being offered. So we saw you know, the idea of getting a college education being expanded um, sort of in the latter half of the 20th century. But I think the turning point that kind of explains how a lot of people see the college admission system now is that in the 1970s, before up until that point, tuition fees were kind of rising in comparison to how how much money people were earning but then when we got to that point in the 70s tuition fees were really starting to grow a lot more compared to how yearly salaries were so you know you see students having to take out more loans and 
in the meantime, the salaries that they're making are not increasing. So the amount of student loans that people have had to take out is a lot. And I think there's just, it's amounted to now than ever before, but it's become so competitive because, you know, kids want to get into a certain school and then there are only certain so many scholarships and grants and aids that are being able to kind of be lent out. So I think the competition around college admissions has really started to increase because of that. Whereas, you know, years before colleges were starting to open up to give an education to all kinds of people. Whereas now there's so much competition that goes into it that I think, you know, it's kind of fostered a system that has led almost up until a to the scandal in a way. I think the amount of competition and um, lengths that people will go to to kind of get into their dream school, um, you know, I think it's been building for years and that's what a lot of people have said, you know, when the scandal first broke out is that everything was kind of leading up until this point um, in a way. And, you know, I make the comparison that the college admission system has kind of evolved to a symbol of corporate capitalism. And I and I think in a way it's, it's correct because, you know, it's become a system where it can be monetized, you know, whether it's with student loans and, you know, companies making money off of the interest that they're charging students to just the tuition rates in general. Um, you know, it's become, it's become very expensive just to be able to get a decent college education. And I think, you know, we've seen a trend of that happen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, and a lot of companies see it as a way to kind of cash in and make money off of that. So I think because we live in a capitalist country, I think people when they can find a way to monetize a certain entity, even if it's education, they will. So I think it's kind of led up to this point, um, you know, in a, in a certain way. So in a way, how you discussed uh, that way back in the early 1800s, late 1700s, how only kind of rich individuals would get to attend school, that's kind of, um, that kind of image is still uh, alive and well today in the sense that um, the rich still have an advantage, I guess, over uh, individuals that uh, are come from different socioeconomic means. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because it's kind of coming full circle in a way because in the very beginning, like you say, it was only for a certain set of people um, who could actually access a college education. And then what we see throughout the 20th century is that a lot of people were getting more of a chance and a chance to kind of get a different kind of education, not just an education in the classical arts, but um, giving people a chance to kind of build a decent life. Um, and and it's changed a lot. I mean, since the 1980s, it's just the cost of attendance just alone and the tuition rates are so high that, you know, students have to take out a lot of money and invest a lot of time and effort. And, and then, you know, when you look at the numbers and a lot of students see how long it'll take to repay that, it's, you know, in a sense, yes, you can go to college now because you can take out, out a lot of loans, but then the, the way that that will impact a lot of students later on in life is, um, you know, it's, it's staggering. So technically, yes, anybody can go to college if you take out the right amount of loans, but then years later, you kind of have to face the um, sort of situation of how will I pay this back? Whereas, you know, children of wealthier families don't necessarily have to kind of grapple with that because they have the means to just pay for, you know, the tuition right offhand. And that's kind of the critique that um, a lot of people that are involved in the scheme is are getting is that it's the idea that, you know, you already have so much to your advantage in the beginning anyway you know you have access to wealth so you can afford to hire you know the best tutors and um to 
be with your child more and to, you know, be present and help them, you know, in terms of test scores and academics and things like that, which is all fine, you know, that's that's all <laughs> perfectly legal and you're able to do that, hire the best tutors and everything like that. So you already have these advantages, but then, you know, you see parents allegedly going to the next level to try to get even more of an advantage. So I think that's the critique that a lot of these parents were getting is that one, you know, people of extreme wealth um, already have such a huge leg up in terms of going to college um, and then, you know, them kind of going to this next level um, of trying to facilitate their kids into getting these schools. It, it got a lot of critique because, you know, the argument is that you already have such a, a leg up on this already. Um, but yeah, to, to go back to your point, I do think it has come, definitely come full circle. Um, and I think it just comes down to you know, companies wanting to find a way to monetize um, whatever they can, even education. And you, in regards to these parents that kind of take it to the next level, um, what are your thoughts on ways to prevent this? And uh, I guess from your paper, um, you mentioned even the playing field. What are ways to, at the very least, even the playing field? Yeah, so in um, my article, I talk about, you know, a few different ideas that are being proposed, you know, sort of immediately after the scandal, there was, um, especially in California, which was where a lot of these schools that were allegedly not involved in the scandal, but, you know, the schools that the parents facilitated their kids going into um, were in California, things, schools like USC and stuff like that. So there were a lot of proposals being made in California, but um, just in general, I mean, I think a lot of the things that I talk about that people have been proposing just on a, a national level is, one, setting potential restrictions on how much you know, parents can actually donate to these schools. You know, yes, schools benefit greatly on these donations, but if you have parents that are making consistent large sums of donations, I mean, there's an argument that the scales are going to be tipped in their favor when it comes to their kids applying to that school because an admissions officer is going to look back and say, oh, yeah, you know, their parents have paid, you know, X amount of millions of dollars, you know, versus a child that maybe doesn't come from wealth but would deserve to get into the school based on merit. So um, one thing that people have talked about is just kind of setting certain restrictions on how much parents can donate and when and how often. So that's something to think about. And then um, a second, um, you know, kind of tactic that I talk about is creating rules to ensure that admissions decisions that are processed are not left to the sole discretion of one particular person. A lot of what we saw happening in the case was, you know, parents um, paying Singer and um, Singer using people to kind of talk to coaches and, you know, heads of um, athletic teams at these schools and try to push these kids off as athletic recruits. And a lot of times you saw the decision being left up to a single coach or, you know, member of, of these teams. So I think a lot of people have talked about having a more collaborative admissions process and especially when it comes to athletics I think that's um, a big thing because if you're just looking at a student in terms of academic merit you know a lot of times there's a review board and there's several people that look at an application but I think a lot of times kids that have strong athletic backgrounds or say they have strong athletic backgrounds um, you know they're looked at a little bit differently so I think a second kind of tactic is um, creating rules to make sure athletic admissions are not just left up to a sole dis the sole discretion of one person. And also, um, several states have talked about amending their tax laws so that colleges can actually have um, their, their donations taxed. Um, you know, so not unlike how a lot of corporations are, you know, people have talked about cor corporations getting taxed. Um, that's been a potential um, 
you know, one of the potential solutions as well is having these donations that are made to these schools, having them taxed and seeing what effects that would have. Um, but specifically, actually in California, there's proposals that are being admitted um, that would have, you know, administrative staff members approval before a student is accepted into a public school or university. Um, you know, things like hiring an auditor to go through their admissions process, especially for student athletes at public universities in California. And then um, there's also a, a bill, I believe it's called AB 697, um, which would actually hold, withhold grants if schools don't provide data on the number of legacy admissions and enrollments that they have. So, so yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, the there was a lot of critique made upon people involved in the scandal and the case, but I think there's always, whenever there's sort of a, um, a legal scandal that breaks out like this in the news, I think one thing that the legal community and just the people in general that are following the case can look at is, okay, how would this affect us going forward and what are some positives that we can take out of this? So I think the case, when it came out, it really illuminated um, and served as an example about what really goes on in college admissions in our country and how everything how college admissions, how the changes, how that's led us to this point, but then now looking at, okay, how can we solve this issue, and how can we try to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again, and, um, you know, creating, you know, an even playing field, as I say in the article, and what are ways that we can ensure a fair system, and I think um, California especially, but I think also states all across the country are kind of looking at that, and looking at different restrictions that we can set up, whether it's, you know, restricting how much to donate to a school, adding more people to kind of go through the admissions process, um, making the process more collaborative, so ensuring that, you know, things like corruption and bribery can't easily sort of slip in. So at the very least, whether it's changing the tax laws or providing more oversight in uh, public universities, uh, there has actually been a response um, post the, the um, reveal of this admissions uh, scandal. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we see that all across the board and different proposals that are being made. I mean, it takes time for, you know, a proposal and to eventually become a bill and to eventually be made law. It takes a lot of time and a lot of people have to kind of review it and give their approval. But uh, the fact that it's become, it's going underway and so quickly, I mean, I think it was back in May, which was only two months after the scandal that a lot of these proposals were being made, especially in California, um, which is where, you know, a lot of the schools involved in the scandal were and are. Um, um, you know, I think the fact that it was going underway so quickly really shows that there is a response being made and there's an effort to try to kind of, it, it won't happen overnight and it won't happen quickly, but just the fact that we see people, um, especially lawmakers and people involved in the legal community making changes to this um, is, is positive. And I think that's where it all starts. I mean, there can be a lot of activism and a lot of authorship and legal scholarship on this, but um you know, to make real change, to try to hopefully ensure that this doesn't happen again, it kind of has to start with, um, you know, the political sphere and, and the lawmaking sphere as well. Well, thank you, uh, Attorney Voulage, for being here today. Uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to uh, interview for the podcast. Again, Attorney Elizabeth Voulage has written numerous articles on the college admissions case including an article titled Why the Potential Future Varsity Blues Legal Trial Should Make College Admissions Fair Game for All Students. And that was for the New England Law Review. She has also written an article for the New York Bar Association Journal and the Gonzaga Journal of International Law and Law 360. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth Boulage. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.